You are listening to Love Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaMe.com for more information. With summer now upon us, I invite you to join us at the Kennebunkport Festival. Five days of celebration centered around food, wine, art, music, and of course, community. This year's festival is June 5th through 10th, and we're especially excited to note that Love Maine Radio's producer, Spencer Albee, and his band are headlining the Maine Craft Music Festival with special guests, the ghosts of Paul Revere. For tickets to the Maine Craft Music Festival and details about all the good times waiting for you at the festival, go to KennyBunkportFestival.com. All of us at Maine Media Collective look forward to seeing you there. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 298. Three is a magic number. Winning James Beard. Airing for the first time on Sunday, June 4th, 2017. With the restaurants Hugo's, Eventide, and Honeypaw, the partners of Big Tree Hospitality have achieved remarkable success. This week, we speak with Arlen Smith, Mike Wiley, and Andrew Taylor about their own stories, winning the 2017 James Beard Award, and what life is like as they expand their business outside of Portland. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. It's my great pleasure to have with me today Arlen Smith, who is one of the partners of Big Tree Hospitality and someone I've had on the show before. It's good to have you back again. It's great to be here. You've been a very busy guy since the last time you were in. Yes, very much so. It's, uh, it's been a whirlwind for sure. So for uh, people who haven't had a chance to listen to our very early interview, that was right around the time that you had um, purchased Hugo's along with your partners, Andrew Taylor and Mike Wiley. And then you also were opening Eventide. Yeah. It so was, it was pretty early. It was. It was like we were able to turnkey Hugo's because um, we were all working there, um, but had the, uh, the idea of opening up a little oyster bar next to it. Um, and that took us about four months in uh, our little oyster bar, um, which turned into something much bigger than we ever expected. So so I want to go back a little bit to um, the Arlen Smith that grew up in Buffalo, New York. I don't think this is an Arlen that a lot of people know very well. No, I mean, my close friends do. But uh, I grew up in Buffalo, um, and pretty early on, I, I knew I wanted to be in the culinary world, um, so I started working in kitchens when I was like 15, 16, um, and then I had some some chefs who looked at me and uh, 
saw that I, I could be I could do this um, more I could really dive into it and I wasn't just trying to be a cook um, so they encouraged me to go to culinary school um, so after I graduated high school I moved out to the Hudson Valley Hyde Park where I, I went to the CIA um, Culinary Institute of America and uh, they you know had a couple recommendation letters that helped get me in it was definitely a different school back then now that makes me feel old but um yeah the that time of my life was pretty awesome uh, a lot of changes happening I was the first one um, for my family to go to college so it was exciting for for them as well um, so yeah that was my, my New York life was mostly Buffalo and then about eight years in Hudson Valley where uh, where I loved it. It was beautiful there. A lot of people compare it to Maine just because of its agriculture and um, and its restaurants and things like that. But yeah, it was great. You were the first one in your family to go to college. Tell me about tell me about your family, brothers, sisters. Yeah, I have an older brother um, who went off to the Navy, and he was my father's from the Navy, and my brother wasn't sure what he wanted to do, but he was uh, that was appealing to him definitely not appealing to me um and uh so he went off and did that and I had my dreams of going to culinary school and I have a younger sister who is incredible and she moved out here right after we opened up Eventide so she's now one of our bar managers there so I actually have some family here which is really awesome um I'm close with both of them my brother still lives back in Buffalo and uh who has two kids now and uh yeah. When you were in high school, what did you what did you like to do for classes? What was your what was your main area of interest academically? Um, high school, I did everything I could to get by <laughs> um, uh, as a, like a I guess an, an honor student as close as possible. But really, I did not uh, like academics that much. I was more hands on, more vocational. Um, I loved sports. I was into, um, I was a swimmer, wrestler, football. Uh, but then something changed. It was probably mostly, uh, you know, girls. I like. <laughs> um, it's always the girls. I, isn't I didn't it? want sports taking up all my time. So, but I did like working. Um, I worked with my my father as a um, as a plumber, and I I got to learn a lot through him and I was very hands-on but once I got into the kitchen it was like the social environment um, was really fun it was very appealing to me um, and, and to feel like it's easily to have like instant um, gratification when you're when you're making things with your hands um, and I was always a creative person so the uh, that type of outlet for me was was very appealing and I'm still into arts I wish I could express it more um, but life is changing so quickly right now one day I'll get back to it if you had some chunk of time that yeah. you would actually be able to do exactly what you wanted in the arts what would you be working on um, I would definitely be into sculpting I like I do a lot of carving stuff like that like um, medians of uh, like pumpkins and squashes ice uh, things that are perishable I guess um, but I'd, I'd want to explore more of like the clay realm and uh, and I've talked to a few friends of mine who are in that world and it's just something my brain uh, enjoys it and can understand it so mm. 
so it seems like even with the art, you still like the food. Yeah. Yeah. Why food versus why pumpkins versus? I don't. Know, I just. I I don't know if I can explain that. I just know that. Um, I guess once you can understand something, uh, it's a lot easier to play with it. Does that make sense? You know, if, uh, if you're, if I knew marble really well and I knew how the tools worked with it, then uh, I guess I would be carving marble um, but using those types of mediums. But um, by understanding the way something behaves, it's uh, it's more fun to play with. So it sounds like getting into the, the the culinary world made sense on a lot of different levels because it had the social aspect, it had the hands-on aspect, and the artistic, the creative aspect to some extent. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the odd part about me is that I've I went through all that. I went through school, um, and I made the switch to be in front of the house management. Um, I pursued that for my bachelor's degree. Um, so I'm the, out of our partnership, I'm the only certified chef, which they always get a, a laugh out of because they're absolutely incredible and self-taught. Um, but that understanding of uh, the back of the house, the kitchen, gave me, I think, um, uh, an advantage by, in managing front of the house because you understand what the kitchen needs from you. And you're able to provide that in a in a way that's appealing to a kitchen. You know, having that connection to the front of the house is how it all works. And I don't think all kitchens have that, um, but they should. And, and I think it's a huge benefit. So that was my <clears throat> uh, sort of weird changeover. So now I'm not playing with food, um, but I'm around it all the time. And uh, yeah. Sounds like maybe you miss it a little bit. Yeah, well, I get. I always say that I don't do it professionally because I'm I'm meant for hunting polar bears. I don't like the the heat, um, and being out front allows me to uh, take care of guests, which is something I really enjoy. Um, but the cooking at home is really my passion. You know, being able to cook for friends is a lot more fun for me than being on the line. So. So if you're at home, what are you cooking? Um, with my time now, I typically stick to comfort foods, like, uh, it's grilling season, so I'm always doing steaks and, and pork chops, things that are not too labor intensive, but have, um, an awesome, uh, a quick satisfaction, put it that way. Um, I'm not doing like long stews and roasts and things like that. And I also don't like having leftovers in my fridge, so I try to keep my meals to to one, one or two. You first came to Maine um, because of your exposure to Hugo's before you owned it yourself. Yeah, yeah. Um, My girlfriend at the time, uh, we were living in Rhinebeck and we wanted to make a move. Um, I was thinking about New York City you know, it was close to where I was. I knew that I had a lot of job opportunities there. You know, um, David Chang's uh, Sambar had uh, had been looking for front of the house management, and a friend of mine connected me to them, and uh, I was seriously considering it. You know, they made me an offer. It wasn't great, but 
it was definitely going to be my first big move. Um, and some other close friends of mine um, who live in Kingston, New York, used to live in Portland. And when they heard that I was looking to go to New York, they uh, they sort of like grabbed me by the neck and said, please go to Portland. This That's your city. Just everything about it, you're going to love it. Just go visit. So two weeks later, um, we visited up here and um, my girlfriend did all the research. She had the time and she like quickly plugged into like what was happening at the time. And this is 2009. So there was still some amazing things happening then. I mean, just looking at what it is now, it's incredible. But um, we we ended up going to like local 188. Um, seeing the scene there was an awesome cocktail scene. Um, even the people, the diners, I mean, this group of young girls come in probably early college and they all sit around this couch and you're hearing them order and they're ordering like mead and these like craft cocktails stuff that you just wouldn't expect that demographic to be enjoying um and the the kicker was um she found uh hugo's had been nominated for a james beard award then hadn't won it yet and it was up for one that year it was like his uh rob evans third year i think and on the website, it it had a chef's tasting um, for $120. Chef's tasting. We're like, wow, that's really cheap. I mean, looking at like New York price and like 12 courses. We're like, yeah, let's sign it up. And we didn't realize like how big of a deal it was for them to be doing it. They were doing tasting menus. They had a la carte. It was like it was a very mom and pop joint. Um, so we sit down. It's middle of February when we're there too. There's like four feet of snow on the ground. But I'm from Buffalo, so I'm in heaven. I'm like, this This is still working great. Um, we were staying at the Regency, which is still one of my favorite hotels here. We walk down, and we sit in this dining room that, you know, had a couple people in it. It wasn't crazy. And had still one of the best meals of my life. Um, ended up being 17 courses. I was eating things that I had never experienced before. And I could not believe that this city was supporting something like that um so we we went back home to rhinebeck and uh two weeks later came back looked at apartments two weeks after that we moved here um and i think it it's a testament that we fell in love with portland um in the middle of winter and with not as much going on that it is now i mean it was really just it was very charming and appealing so my goal was to come here and not manage it was my goal was to like take a break serve a little bit make some money make uh, make my own schedule because i was working a lot um and i walked through the door after three days of living here um, of local 188 and jay Villani was um in the in the back kitchen and all i heard was a voice like saying you hear about the job and they just posted it like it was basically like a cattle call and uh, i remember it was raining that day gross out but I was like you know I dressed up and I had my you know my bag and just printed out my resumes that were cleaned up and I'm like yeah you know um would love to talk to you and he he came out and I handed my resume and he looked at me and he's like you know this is all this is all management we're looking for for serving and I was like yeah yeah that's kind of what I want to do and he's like he sort of rolled his head like seriously like um and I noticed he had a, a little bit of an accent, and uh, 
I called it out. It's from Staten Island, which that's where my family's from. Um, so we hit it off, and then the next day I had a job. And uh, it was one of the best things that happened to me, I think, because it, it plugged me into some of my best friends now, um, friends that are doing awesome things in the community still. And it was just this, uh, it was very serendipitous for me, um, that, that time. Um, but quickly, you know, being a server there, it wasn't going to be enough for me. I, I wanted it to be, but um, Rob won the James Beard Award. So this is two th- April of 2009. He wins, and he doesn't have any management. They never had a front-of-the-house manager. It was always his wife, Nancy. And she's a rock star, and she has all of her things um, in place, you know, the way that she likes to work. But that award, you know, sort of blew up Portland. You know, the James Beard Award is not just for a chef or a restaurant. It is incredible for the area. Um, and they just, they had to handle it. And, uh, my girlfriend was working there. She actually got a job at Hugo's and told them what my background was. They quickly um, had me come in. They already knew me. We were already friends. Um, but they didn't really know who I was and what I was looking to do. And uh, they offered me a job. And uh, I liked it. I really liked um, what I was going to get out of it because it wasn't corporate. It was uh, very mom and pop. And they had all of their policies and procedures and their you know, that was something I, I didn't, uh, I'd had an experience like that. So I got to learn it and fall in love with it. And, uh, that's where I met my partners. Now, Andrew, Andrew Taylor was, um, he became the chef de cuisine a month after I started. So, um, we were basically there from the beginning together. And, um, as time went on, you know, we became really close. Mike Wiley came on board, I think a year after, Andrew and I were there, and it, uh, Rob and Nancy were trying to sell it. They were trying to sell Hugo's, and um, you know, for me, I didn't, I didn't have any money, and uh, all I had was you know my experiences and sort of my dreams were to just keep working for awesome people. Uh, so I kept encouraging Andrew to buy it. <laughs> it's like because you have like David Chang came up with Ryan Miller, um, who was his chef at Sambar which is funny how it all comes back around. He was going to buy it. Um, they were seriously considering coming up here and he was going to do his New York restaurant or his dream of a restaurant. And David Chang was going to back him. And we started thinking about it like, wow, we can't. One, I realized that I didn't want to see Hugo's go. It was, it was something really special for us. And to see it continue on would be awesome. So I kept encouraging Andrew to do that. Um, and he came back to me and said, "I think we, uh, I think we should buy it." And I said, what do, you, "Do you have a mouse in your pocket? Because you're saying we." Um, that's something my father used to always say. And we, I just was like, "Seriously, man?" And he he laid out really quickly what he thinks or what he thought would would work well, as far as like bringing Mike in as a third partner, and. Um, having Rabelais, which was, well, that's a whole other part of the story, but one of the, the pushes for us to, to buy it and to do our own thing was our good friends Sam and Don Lindgren, who own Rabelais. That was the bookstore right next to Hugo's. It was just an incredible bookstore. I mean, 
it's still just one of those special things when you look back like how how awesome that was to have in Portland they were really close friends of ours but they weren't renewing their lease so same same time Rob and Nancy are trying to sell Hugo's they're going to get rid of their lease so all these changes are going to happen in the building and personally I'm like wow these are big changes what what's going to happen but they nudged us and told us like we're not going to renew our lease because they became an Amazon book window shop you know everyone would just buy they'd look at the book in their store and then buy it online which is very unfortunate so they moved down to Biddeford we bought Hugo's knowing that we were going to be able to take over their space and do an oyster bar which we didn't really know what the restaurant was going to be we just we knew it was going to be something and the the appealing part of that was it's like Hugo's would not sustain three owners it just wouldn't it, it's not a cash cow if you will it's it's a, a very uh, special restaurant but it's not built to make money it it makes money but it's um the it's appealing to us to be able to have something that's a little more of like rob and nancy's duck fat you know they they had their like casual spot that you know it helps sustain life in the winter time because this is still a very seasonal town and uh so we chose to to do that knowing that we would be able to keep that casual and push it forward as like our our i hate using the term cash cow but really that's what for a business you need something that's um sustainable and that's uh that's where the partnership came together and then it blew up from there it was sort of out of our control when uh, the popularity of eventide just took off so well, I appreciate your taking time out of your very busy schedule. It's really been a pleasure to watch your, I want to say, meteoric rise, but I know so much effort is put into this, and I know that it's really been um, just an ongoing, continual process for you and done very well. So mm-hmm. for me to be able to see this is very gratifying, and I appreciate your taking the time to come in here today. Thanks, Lisa. That means a lot. I've been speaking with Arlen Smith. He is one of the partners in Big Tree Hospitality. I hope we'll see you again. Me too. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by The Front Room, The Corner Room, The Grill Room, and Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room. Chef Harding Lee Smith's restaurants where atmosphere, great service, and palate-pleasing options are available to suit any culinary mood. For more information, go to theroomsportland.com. Today, it's my pleasure to have with me Mike Wiley, who is one of the partners in Big Tree Hospitality. It's good to have you here today. Thank you. It's good to be here. You've had some really fun stuff happening in your life lately, not the least of which is uh, James Beard Award. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. It's uh, yeah, pretty wild. Yeah, definitely never thought I'd be here doing this. And yeah, just won the James Beard Award. Well, tell me a little bit about um, growing up in Hanover, New Hampshire. What was your life like back then? Um, I don't know. It was simple. Hanover is a really wonderful place to grow up. Um, Dartmouth College sort of dominates the landscape there. Um, so everything's pretty safe. Um, you don't need to worry about crime too much. Uh, it's right on the banks of uh, the mighty Connecticut River. And uh, there are amazing rope swings. Uh, you could, you know, swing out to the river, swim to Vermont, go to the next rope swing. Uh, it's a great spot to mountain bike and skiing culture was really big there so I skied a lot as a kid and uh, I don't know hung out hung out with my little brother and you know played capture the flag and uh, 
enjoyed school and was, I don't know, kind of, uh, I don't know, I guess a bit of a dork, didn't play a lot of sports, but um, yeah, being a dork's cool now, so I guess I was just ahead of my time. Yeah, I've noticed that. I feel like I I missed that by a few years myself, but but yes, it's good that you can like intellectual pursuits now and and be accepted for that. Not feel like a pariah. Yeah, it's amazing. Exactly, yeah. You went on to uh, Colby College, and you have a degree in creative writing. Yep, creative writing and religious studies. And religious studies. Yep. Why those? Um, I don't know. I mean, I always loved words, and English was much uh, easier. It came easier to me. Uh, my folks were really good about at dinner, you know, what book are you reading? If you don't have a book, then a book is assigned to you. And so it was just like, reading's big in our family. We're readers. That's what we do. And um, my brother's a really strong reader, and he kind of got the math brain. I was put in advanced math because, I don't know, there was some wave of pedagogical theory that said, oh, if kids are good with Legos, then they're going to be excellent mathematicians or whatever. And I was really good at Legos. But then when math got hard enough, they were like, okay, it turns out the Lego thing doesn't really apply. We're going to have to put you in the regular track math. But uh, school always came easy to me, and um, I liked... uh, um, I was I was liked reading. Reading was really the big thing. And then my father was went to med school out in California in the seventies and got really into transcendental meditation and ruined lots of cocktail parties. And you know he had me reading Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance when I was a kid and like uh, Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's essays on a mustard seed and all this like uh, hippie seventies nonsense. And I really thought it was fascinating. And so. Um, I took a bunch of classes in it when I was at Colby, um, and uh, I was really always interested in uh, Eastern religion primarily, and I read about it in my free time, and um, I actually just sort of one day was at the registrar's office, and I realized, wow, I'm just two credits away from being a double major. I might as well take a biblical studies two or whatever the heck the class was. So I just sort of kind of stumbled backwards into the religious studies. But uh, English was always kind of, you know, my mother's an English professor, um, and I always sort of thought, ultimately, I'm going to become a professor. Um, I like talking. I'm, I like words. I like the life of the mind. And I just sort of thought, yeah, sure, English, that's easier. When I got to Colby, I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a paleontologist, because I was also absolutely in love with dinosaurs when I was in high school. Not when I was a kid. It was trucks when I was a kid. But um, I took the intro to bio course and was like, this is a lot of hard work. I am not going to do this. I'm going to go to English where I can pontificate and I can skim some of the readings and I'll be fine. What type of a doctor did your father become? Uh, Anesthesiologist. He's since retired, but he worked at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center for 25 years or so. And was your mother also a professor at Dartmouth? Uh, No, she wasn't. She taught at, uh, she was an ICU nurse, but she went back to school when I was in elementary school and got her doctorate and uh, she taught at Colby Sawyer College which is in New London New Hampshire about 20 minutes from Hanover that's interesting that your father had this kind of hippie transcendental meditation thing and then went into a pretty mind-oriented subspecialty as a physician mm-hmm yeah he's uh my mother's fond of saying he's uh anal retentive he's very particular about everything and I think that Anesthesia lends its, I mean, obviously all of medicine does, but I think anesthesia uh, lends itself well to that. He is always, uh, he's very, very organized. He's since gotten really into cooking, and uh, that attention to detail definitely comes through in, uh, in Chris Wiley's cuisine as well. It's funny. 
What did you like to read when you were younger? Um, geez, um, really anything and everything. I mean, what did I love? I loved Jurassic Park. I think I read Jurassic Park eight times. I, re- I crushed all of Michael Crichton's books. I read a, a bunch of sci-fi. Um, I love this book called Ender's Game. Um, I got into Stephen King a little bit. Um, and then my father was like, oh, you should read it. And honest to God, for like three or four years thereafter, maybe even five years, I would like run past storm grates and sewer drains and flush the toilet and sprint out of the bathroom. It just absolutely ruined me for Stephen King. And so now with the remake coming out, I have like, I'm going to be confronting some of my demons. It's going to be interesting. But um, really, I liked reading uh, just about just about anything. I mean, fiction primarily, some of the um, Eastern religion stuff, the Ram Dass and uh, Timothy Leary. I got into poetry when I was a little bit older, but um, yeah, I would say fiction. I was never a big nonfiction guy. I've sort of been exploring that a little more recently, but um, it was always fiction, novels primarily, and short stories. I loved J.D. Salinger was like my guy. Not Catcher in the Rye, but Franny and Zooey. Franny and Zooey and all the Glass family stories were the ones that really, uh, really hooked me. So I'm guessing that if you have a degree in creative writing, then you must have explored your writing side as well. Yeah, um, yeah, I did. Um, uh, to no great avail. Um, yeah, I wrote. Um, I sort of made a, like a practice and a discipline of it when I was living in Crested Butte, Colorado, where I'd get up in the morning, I'd get myself out of bed at eight, and then I would sit and type for two hours. And this was part of one of my mom's favorite uh, teaching exercises to her uh, English 101 or intro to English classes is uh, the secret to writing is writing. You just need to sit there and do it. Um, So every morning or every uh, class they would start with 20 minutes of sustained writing where you could just write on your keyboard, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing. But as long as you were generating words... um, then you were okay. It's just like this exercise in logaria, just constantly producing words and putting them on a page. And so I did that for a while, and uh, I would write for two hours every morning, and um, I enjoyed it. And I think it was just sort of a nice way to organize my brain. I wasn't like working on a novel or anything like that. It was more just kind of uh, 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 I don't know, just uh, reacting to my day and what I was thinking about and things like that. So. Um, I haven't really, it's, it's almost funny that I studied uh, creative writing. Um, I think the literary theory stuff ap- appealed to me more. Um, all those classes in theory I thought were, were much cooler and sort of trying to decipher crazy, nonsensical contemporary American poetry. That appealed to me more, like code breaking or something like that. So it was really the understanding of the writing and the writer. Yeah, the writer a little less so. I was always just sort of interested. I love the idea that... Um, uh, you know, like structuralism, that like whatever's on the page, that's what matters. Like, it's, you, you can expand that to be like, oh, well, you know, they were abused as a kid, and so maybe this, this you know, the psychoanalytical critique, but I never thought, I don't know, that, that never drew me that much. I like much more of the, um, you know, what does this symbol signify, and da-da-da-da-da, and are there recurring themes, and um, I really liked writing essays uh, in college. I really enjoyed... Uh, the fact that every single, or almost every single English department assignment was uh, read this and then write about it, and that was it. It wasn't like pick five themes and discuss why these themes are. Even if that was the assignment, you could always turn it into whatever the hell you wanted. And that's what that's what appealed to me about English. 
You spent five months in Nepal. Yeah. What were you doing out there? Um, so I was an idiot. Um, I did a, a really good job in my foreign language classes. I was in advanced Spanish and uh, advanced uh, advanced French when I graduated high school. And if I wasn't a moron, I could have just taken whatever the test is to prove that you're competent or capable. And I could have proed out of taking any foreign language classes. But of course, I only figured that out until like my sophomore. I didn't figure it out until halfway through my sophomore year. And I realized like, oh man, I don't think I could take that class and, or take that test and do as well. So how can I avoid taking classes in a foreign language? And Colby offered a program um, that was run by Pitzer College out in California, um, which was an amazing program. Um, it was a foreign language program, and it's total immersion. And they sort of take this idea that, you know, some people are fond of saying like me, like, oh, I'm not good at math, or oh, I'm not good at foreign languages. And they were just like, no, that's not something we believe. Everybody is good at foreign languages. You just need to be in the right situation and the right setting with the right people. And so it was this fully immersive, um, you're going to live with uh, a Nepali family who doesn't speak any English uh, for four months, and you're going to attend six hours of language classes every day where it's going to be you and two other American students and one Nepali instructor who won't speak any English to you or very little English to you. And it was just sort of a trial by fire. They'd send us out into markets and be like, you need to go and buy two bunches of bananas. And we would just barely know how to say bananas. And it was just an exercise in like, you know, feeling social pressure and humiliation. You know, like you, I don't know how many times I deeply offended people by my behavior before. I was, oh, that is not done. You don't aim the soles of your feet at people. That's incredibly rude. Um, but it was amazing. I mean, they had all of us, every single one of us in the program, were chattering away in Nepali, arguing with cab drivers. Um, and then the last month of the program was our independent study, and we could pretty much decide to do you know whatever uh, study whatever aspect of Nepali culture or society that we wanted to and I studied or I decided to study um, uh, yak herding culture in the Solokumbu Valley which is kind of a valley over from uh, Mount Everest and it was amazing I just I had my rock climbing shoes with me and I just climbed I just bouldered climbing like smallish boulders um, in huge glacial moraines at like 13,000 feet um, and ate rice and lentils and got up really early and went to bed really early and yeah it was amazing when I came back to America I could like sprint for miles and of course you know you lose that in a week or four days or something like that but I felt like a superhero there for a little while but it was an amazing experience Nepal is an incredibly beautiful country it's so simple and Almost without exception, everybody I met was just very warm, and uh, and I got a great sweater out of it that Andrew Taylor is fond of making fun of. It's uh, like a Cosby sweater. It's all these hideous colors and patterns, but it's made of yak fur, and it cost $2.50. What about this rhetoric degree that you got, this graduate degree? I'm kind of interested in this because, first of all, I don't, I don't really know what that means. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Like, where does this fit in your... Schema. So I was uh, um, a ski bum um, and kind of a climbing bum for like almost five years. I lived in Salt Lake City. I lived in, uh, I spent most of my time in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is like the most beautiful place in the world. Um, and I always sort of in the back of my mind thought that I was going to be 
uh, a professor um, and living in Ski Town, USA, you know, you can have your weird daily two-hour writing discipline, but, you know, most of the conversation tends towards what's snowpack like, uh, what mountain bike trails have just opened, are they too muddy, yada, yada, yada. Uh, what's the camber on the new Vocal Gotama ski like this year? And I sort of, I was missing school and I was missing having some more kind of uh, uh, academic style discussions. So I applied to this program at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and I was accepted. And uh, I was sort of trying to think a little strategically about um, finding a job because, you know, you get your PhD in English and it's like, hey, congratulations. Now what are you going to do? There are not a lot of uh, jobs for English professors, and there are a whole lot of English, uh, uh, English PhDs, and there are a lot of English PhDs out there. So I sort of I started doing some research about how I could differentiate myself and, um, you know, English is sort of this broader rubric that you could filter down into a handful of different disciplines. And um, uh, as I was saying earlier, I really love the kind of literary theory and almost philosophical aspects of, uh, of uh, language and composition. And I knew that, you know, I, I wasn't about to be doing... Uh, you know, any kind of hardcore semantics, which is almost like mathematics or logic problems and rhetoric, which is basically the study of uh, argumentation and uh, the appearance of truth, Um, not truth itself, but its appearance. Um, I sort of thought, oh, well, the skills that I, you know, that I honed is maybe an aggressive word here, but the skills that I tried to, I sought to cultivate in college, um, they could apply well to this. And at the time when I was reading about rhetoric and I started reading some academic papers, you know, people were applying rhetorical theory to things like uh, Ridley Scott's Aliens. Um, there was, I got this idea to write a paper on uh, the Ghostbusters films. Um, I never actually did it, but um, people were looking at uh, the rhetoric of architecture and of public spaces and how um, the, that big reflective bean sculpture in. Um, I can't remember the name of the park in downtown Chicago. It's it's enormous. It's like, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's like you know, 100 feet tall or something like that. And people just walk up to it and they want to touch it. And it's this amazing communal thing. And, you know, there were people talking, writing about, uh, you know, the rhetorical affect of that object and what it does is how it forces us all to kind of come together and kind of confront each other. And uh, I don't know, some of it, like with all academia, some of it kind of spirals out of control or disappears up its own rear end pretty quickly. But um, I thought that uh, I thought that rhetoric would be kind of an interesting thing, um, interesting thing to study. And I really enjoyed um, a lot of a lot of my doctoral program or a lot of my master's program. Um, and it was great because I was offered a teaching assistantship. Um, so I taught some classes and as a result, I didn't have to pay for my master's, which was huge. Um, and at the end of it, though, I sort of, I didn't love the culture of academics, and I had such a different experience as a student at Colby College than plenty of my students were having at the University of Colorado at Boulder that I sort of, I don't know, maybe I was kind of a little Pollyanna-ish about it, but I, um, it just sort of felt like, you know, I had been ski-bumming and I had been cooking to finance that, and um, I just found myself missing the kitchen and missing doing like physical things with my hands. And the writing and reading was great, but um, I found myself kind of antsy and doing a lot of like brazing and uh, 
baking all the way through grad school and I had a meal at a restaurant um, that I ultimately ended up working at with my parents um, halfway through my program and I just thought like I was looking at the cooks and I just thought like that's I miss doing that those guys are really lucky I miss being in a kitchen and so um, I was offered a spot on the PhD track but um, I ultimately uh, or I was encouraged to to apply um, but I ultimately decided not to because I just didn't like the life that much. I don't want to be having that conversation for the rest of my life. Well, I know that uh, you've been incredibly busy, and I know that taking the time to come in here today really is, um, it's been a commitment for you, but I appreciate it. Oh yeah, absolutely, it's my pleasure. I've been speaking with Mike Wiley, who is one of the partners with Big Tree Hospitality, and as we've been saying, uh, 2017 James Beard Award winner, Keep up the good work, and I hope we see you back in here again at some point. Thank you. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is Portland's largest gallery and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space. The current show schedule includes Nancy Simmons, Elizabeth Hoy, and many more. For complete show details, please visit our website, artcollectormaine.com. It's my good fortune to have in the studio with me, Andrew Taylor, who is one of the partners of Big Tree Hospitality. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. And the reason that you were nice enough to come in is that um, we're very excited that you were named um, a James Beard Award winner just recently. Yep, we uh, yeah we took home the award for Best Chef Northeast, uh, myself and Mike Wiley, my, the co-chef and one of the other owners of uh, Eventide, uh, Hugo's and the Honey Paw, Big Tree Hospitality. So yeah, we're thrilled. So I know a lot of people know about you as as that as that guy who's part of the big the big three with big tree but i guess i'm kind of interested in about you as the guy before that or sort of in the middle of that you um you were raised in cape cod um i spent a lot of time on cape cod but raised in the boston area uh newton massachusetts um but yeah i spent a lot of time on the summers at my sort of my grandparents house on the cape um uh, and sort of, I would say, if there was a genesis of my culinary career, it would probably be there and doing a lot of, you know, I spent most of the time fishing and uh, digging clams and uh, catching crabs and stuff like that. So, so growing up in Newton, your father, from what I understand, is an attorney. Yep. Yep. Who right. once said to you something like, "You should do something with your hands," and you thought maybe he actually meant like orthopedic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was, I I went to Bates College uh, in Lewiston, Maine, and um, sort of graduated with not the most uh, distinguished record there, and sort of academics was not necessarily my thing, and I hadn't really found a path, didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, and I specifically recall being on an uh, airplane uh, with him, I think it might have even been after my, my grandfather's passing um, on the way back and he asked me what what he thought I would do or what I thought I would do and I said I don't know I'll thinking about taking the LSATs and applying to law school and he said sort of shook his head and said no, don't do that you know like I don't think you'll you'll like that career um, and sort of pushed me to 
do something with my hands and uh and while I think he probably had in mind, uh, yeah, orthopedic surgery or, um, you know, sports medicine or something like that, I, I took it as uh, sort of the, what I needed to hear to pursue my passion and do what I wanted to do. And sort of being an attorney sort of runs in the family. So I was, you know, after that, I was like, okay, I can sort of break that trend. So what was it that he thought about the profession profession he actually chose that you didn't think would match well with you well he i mean and yeah that's not necessarily to speak speak poorly of being an attorney because i think he really enjoyed it and he really enjoys aspects of it um and and yeah i think you know the law is is quite fascinating even to me now still and i would have enjoyed aspects of it myself but i think he just he knew that I was restless in nature and wouldn't enjoy sitting behind a desk and pawing through, um, you know, 80-page 80, 80 legal documents and, uh, and you know, writing up legal agreements and so on and so forth. And I think that's part of the job that he probably wasn't his favorite part either. And he knew, he, he saw in me that I had more of that side of him uh, than, than any other, so... I think, and he was right on, and I'm, I, I've thanked him many times for, for, uh, <laughs> for steering me away for it, from it, um, even if he partially denies it. Still, <laughs> it is, it is really important sometimes to get that kind of permission. If you have in your family a bunch of attorneys, for somebody to say, you know, you don't have to do this; you could do something else. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think there's, um, you know, a certain familial expectation to uh um to pursue sort of a more traditional career i think i, I sort of felt that and, and not even not only familial but also from my peers i went to uh sort of a well-heeled uh, high school in cambridge massachusetts and then to bates college and while all my friends were getting jobs in you know uh, financial companies or you know law school or business school um, I you know certainly felt an expectation or a bit of a pressure to do so myself and uh, it was reassuring to hear that that wasn't entirely important or that I could do something that I enjoyed why economics <laughs> ran in the family <laughs> just just like being an attorney being an economics major in college was you know my, my brother and my grandfather my father my uncle um yeah sort of ran in the family it was it was easy for me honestly uh yeah mathematics was one of the few things in school that i did well in so i read a piece that someone had written about foraging mm -hmm. and um and you talked about it you talked about kind of wandering around as a child on the mm -hmm. shores of cape cod and digging up clams and Talk to me about some of your early memories of, of, I don't know, getting your hands dirty that way. Um, yeah, tide pools uh, were always fascinating for me. Um, picking periwinkles and, um, you know, seaweeds and starfish and sea anemones and just being fascinated by that. And I think that probably was perhaps the genesis of it. Um, and then, yeah, fishing. Uh, I grew up near a lake and... Uh, me and my sort of four elementary school 
you know, kindergarten through sixth grade friends, best friends. We used to just disappear from our houses and meet at the lake and fish virtually every day. Oftentimes before sunrise, my parents would wake up and be like, where the hell did he go? Uh, so, you know, those, those types of activities, uh, outdoors, um, having to do with, yeah, um, catching or finding uh, food sources was, was always fascinating to me. How did you end up over on the West Coast? Well, my graduated from Bates, and after this is having gotten this advice from my my father, um, I sort of uh, kind of kicked around for a summer in the Boston area, um, and then my my future wife Rachel and I basically got in a car, packed it up, and drove around the country for two months, ostensibly to find out where we would live next. And, uh, you know, we hit up all sort of the major cities in the, the south. Almost New Orleans was number two on the list. We almost moved there instead. But Seattle was the place we felt like you know, would be the spot for us. I really, sort of knowing at that point that I wanted to get into cooking, um, I really wanted to, like, work with uh, seafood and a different type of seafood. So... That was uh, that was probably one of the reasons we picked Seattle. We wanted to be on the West Coast, so um, so yeah, we, we came back, you know, worked for another few months, made up enough money to just move out there, got in the car again, and drove across country. And we had no jobs, no place to stay, no friends out there, but we made it made it work pretty quickly. So, and somehow you ended up working in a pretty well regarded establishment. Yeah, within a couple of days of being there, I was um, I had enrolled myself in a couple culinary classes, um, and I think that got me into at least into a kitchen. Got a job as a prep cook at a sort of a, a fancy steakhouse, and then with the rest of my time, I just walked in the back door of the best French restaurant in town and said, "I'm gonna spend whatever free hours I have here." Um, and I will work for free, whatever you don't have to pay me. And so I did everything there from peeling shallots and garlic to uh, breaking down Dungeness crab and just did that all my own time, showed up whenever I could. Um, and it was a small kitchen, one where the personnel didn't change very frequently. But finally, job did come up, and you know my persistence and hard work paid off, and I got a job there. And that was really sort of what just an incredible place to learn because they did everything from scratch they processed you know everything under the sun um and you just learned the right way to do everything and um at least in the french style so uh terry rotero uh was the chef there um and he was just an incredible mentor for me at that time you also spent time working with ken oranger yep Cleo, which was then so coming from a very like traditional French place to this sort of like sort of high-minded conceptual French Asian uh, uh, sort of fusiony place was just an inc- it was a, quite a shock to me, but it was uh, it was unbelievable. I was just being exposed to all sorts of ingredients and techniques that I had no idea uh, what, what I was getting into. I think at first, but really, really loved my time there. Um, and Ken, you know, Ken to, uh, still is just, again, such an incredible example 
for me um, on how to how to expand, how to um, how to run restaurants, how to how to expand responsibly, um, and you know we keep in touch to this day. And he's just been he's been an amazing example. You got to know um, Arlen pretty early on in in this whole process. You've really been together with him from the very beginning. Yeah, from the day I started Hugo's in 2009, I think. And uh, he started like a month before me. I started as the sous chef under under Rob Evans. And uh, and yeah, we, we sort of... You know, effectively ran Hugo's uh, uh, for several years prior to prior to owning it, and uh, you know we just developed a really great relationship, really great working relationship in particular. Um, and uh, it's just been you know it's been a great it's been a great pairing. So you know, and I knew that he, you know, when it sort of came up to potentially buy Hugo's, I knew I needed his skills and I think he knew he needed my skills and and we both needed Mike's skills so that was sort of the whole the genesis of it but I, I knew I couldn't I couldn't open couldn't run a restaurant or open a restaurant by myself and needed somebody to particularly with with his skills the front of the house uh, taken care of so in the midst of all this um, you have gotten married and had three children in rapid succession <laughs> At least I consider them relatively mm-hmm. rapid succession. Yeah. You now yep. have yep. three boys under the age of five. This is true. And this is true. You've really been doing this yourself, this this whole restaurant ownership thing, for mm-hmm. about five years. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Lincoln, our first uh, our firstborn was uh, born two weeks before we opened Eventide. Um, so yeah, like a month and a half, two months before after we bought Hugo's. And it has been, <laughs> uh, there's been several times when I've sort of tried to persuade Mike and Arlen to open another restaurant or expand or do something. And they're like, I don't know, not right now. And I'm like, Rachel's pregnant. We're having another kid. We need another restaurant. <laughs> so it's been, it, they constantly make fun of me. We're opening a fourth restaurant. And they're like, don't do it. Don't have another <laughs> kid. <laughs> Which won't be a problem. Um, I hope. Uh, no, it's been it's been a great, it's it's been amazing. It's been a lot, obviously, but you know, I've I've always been one to sort of pilot on and just take on as much as I possibly can. And uh, the three boys are all healthy and wonderful, and I've got the most supportive wife. And Rachel has just been unbelievable um, in understanding what it takes to you know run a, a growing and expanding business and. Uh, the responsibilities that that entails and yeah it's it's been it's been a wild ride do your boys also share your interest in things like fishing and being outside uh getting there getting there i did come home yesterday and they they both had aprons on and we're making cookies with uh the two older ones anyways we're making cookies with rachel and uh it was a pretty charming little moment to, to walk into i surprised them a little early um but yeah, I'm gonna get a. I'll, I'll, I'm working on the fishing thing, so you've got the cooking piece. Yeah, but exactly. Now you're gonna worry. You're yeah, gonna yeah, work yeah, on this yeah, other yeah. Thing. Yeah. What do you like to do when you're not in the kitchen, which or in the business? I guess I should say. Um, I, I would say I, I go back to those activities that um, 
I, I really enjoy. I mean, foraging, uh, fishing, uh, just being outdoors, hiking, camping, just, you know, stuff that I moved to Maine for. I love being in Maine for. Um, I don't get to do nearly as much of it as I would like, uh, but but that day will come, I'm sure. In the early summer, what are you foraging for? Ramps is uh, I'm yeah trying to find a time to take a trip real real soon here so I can go forge some ramps. But uh, there's also morels right now, but they're pretty spotty. And then uh, and it really then chanterelle and black trumpet season kicks off in sort of July and August. So what about sea vegetables? Sea vegetables. Um, we did quite a bit of that um, in previous years. Not as much anymore. We actually had a little skiff that I used to run around to the islands of uh of uh casco bay and sort of pick you know sea lettuce and kelp and labor and uh so but yeah i haven't done as much of that as i'd like to and that's mostly just a time thing at this point it's mostly just a time thing yeah exactly so i've been speaking with andrew taylor who is one of the partners in big tree hospitality and uh recent james beard award winner I really appreciate your taking the time out of your day to do this. Absolutely. And I give you a lot of credit for doing all the work that you're doing, not only as a, as a restaurateur, but also as a father of three. Good job. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's been a grind, but it's, uh, it's been amazing. I love it. wouldn't do anything else. You've been listening to Love Maine Radio, show number 298. Three is a magic number. Winning James Beard. Our guests have included Arlen Smith, Mike Wiley, and Andrew Taylor. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa, and see our Love Main Radio Instagram photos on Instagram. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Three is a Magic Number winning James Beard show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Berlin City Honda, the rooms by Harding Lee Smith, Maine Magazine, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Lisa Belisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.